Growing Up, our brand new resource for churches and parents is out now. Woohoo! With Sunday school sessions, training videos, podcast episodes for parents and one for the whole family. All there to help our children navigate the confusion, filter the messages they're surrounded by and hear God's good story. All our Growing Up resources point to the Heavenly Father who loves our children even more than we do and has the answer to their biggest questions about who they are and how to live. Together, as families and churches, we can support each other to start good conversations about bodies, gender and marriage so our children can grow up hearing God's good story. Head over to the website faithinkids.org and find out all the details about growing up. This is the Faith in Parents podcast. This is part of the Who Am I series. My name is Ed. Today we are looking at this topic of what it is to say that our children are lost and found. And to say it bluntly, our children are sinners, our children can be forgiven. Uh, I'm delighted to have with me Karen and Graham. Karen, you've been a guest with us before. Would you remind us uh, who you are, how you're going, where you've been today? Oh, thank you. So, yes, I'm Karen. I work at my local church as a biblical counsel for families, and I'm also placed in a counsellor. So I work predominantly with children and families who have additional needs or mental health disorders. Thanks, Karen. And Karen, you're also a mother. Yes. How old are your children, Karen? Yes, so we have five children. I'm married to Matthew, and our eldest is 20, and then 18, 16, 14 and 9. So two of our children actually have additional needs. So it's it's a part of my own personal story and understanding how we love our children well with all the strengths and needs that the Lord gives them. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for giving us your time. Uh, Graham, Graham Bynan, will you tell us who are you, what do you do and how are you doing? Thank you. It's nice to be with you. I am mainly pastor of a church plant in Cambridge called Grace Church Cambridge. I am also on the faculty of Oak Hill College in North London, where I'm the director of independent training. Uh, None of that bears much connection with kids, so I am the non-professional in the room. But I did write a book on identity uh, at one stage, which is why I think I've got roped in. And you have got grown-up children, Graham. I so do. if nothing else, you have experience. I do, and I do have experience. We've got three, we've got three grown-up kids, 25, 23, and 21. And as a pastor, of course, we have loads of families in the church, and I try and help and encourage and guide uh, parents in that. Thanks. Graham, you've written a book called Mirror, Mirror, about this issue of identity. And I was struck as I read it, you really wrote that, from spending time with young people and listening to them and uh, and seeing that identity is a thing. And even that was 10 years ago or more that you wrote it. Could you just tell us a bit about how you came to write it? What struck you, the situation that led to that? Yeah, so it, it primarily kind of student kind of work. And someone I know involved in student work asked me to do a seminar on identity and to which I said, I know nothing about this. 
And he said, yeah, but there's just nothing decent on it. And people are struggling with it all over the place. And I ended up doing quite a lot of reading, uh, my own kind of work on it. There were bits and pieces written, but he was right. There was a real gap, it seemed. And the more I got into it, the more I thought, this is behind lots of life. And it's behind lots of Christian life. And you could have people who, in a sense, are doing the right kind of thing in church, whether whether kids or, or older, and yet it's almost like the foundation is different because if they're trying to kind of prove themselves because they're insecure about their identity or they're down themselves because they're unsure of their identity and so on, that would drive a lot of their behaviours. And what we were often doing was dealing with the behaviours and never addressing the root issue of identity. And Graham, that... That is the story of parenting as well, isn't it? In that most of us are doing parenting on the hoof. Most of us are dealing with the behaviour right in front of us. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm about to. (laughs) I mean, is that true? That if as parents we understood more about identity, we might approach parenting differently? I think yes, you can put those words in my mouth. I think there's a kind of caveat in that you can't... There's a caveat in practice in that you can't turn every every interaction into a seminar identity. Mm. It's all about the why. Why did you do that? What was driving you? And who we think we are drives so much of what we do or who we're trying to become or what I'm trying to show I am or prove myself or whatever drives so much. But I can't turn every interaction over the dinner table into, so why did you do that? Yeah. Tell me, you know, it turns every session into a counselling session. That, that, that's, so in practice... Yeah. You can't keep on doing that all the time, but but you need to know that's what's going on and at appropriate moments. Be asking that question, be praying into that, be talking to your children about that. And I think that comes as a hugely reassuring word because particularly if parents are listening to this series of podcasts, they can leave thinking every conversation is about identity and it's just which one. Yeah. Thank you. Once a month, once every two months. And, you know, if you have a three-year-old, it's only really in your thinking rather than any sort of conversation where you're talking about For sure, for sure. But even for older kids, I mean, just that that you might end up sitting down and saying, I've noticed that. Yeah. There's this pattern. Can we talk about that? And can we talk about why? Rather than that has to come on the back of every little interaction of you didn't share with your brother or whatever it is. Okay. Graham, could you start with um, some sort of introduction to this topic of sin and forgiveness? Uh, And particularly, we're trying to say this is about identity. It's about who we are. It's the world we're in. It's the world God made us, and it's who God made us. Could you just give us some sort of working definition of what we mean by this? Yeah, I'll have a go. The book book I wrote was called Mirror, Mirror, and the reason, the, the, the sort of the play in that was the idea of looking in a mirror to see who I am. And um, the big thing we tend to do is look into the, into the mirrors the world gives us to see who we are and what it says about us. You know, mirrors of, of, um, of performance and appearance, uh, increasingly almost the mirror of introspection <laughs> that I look in and just go, who do I think I am? Um, and what we need to do is to look into the mirror of God's word. We need to let God tell us who we are, tell us who we are and how he created us, Tell us who we are in how we've turned against him and hence sinners. Tell us who we can be in Christ as those who are forgiven. And so a huge thing is recognising how we tend to build our identity, what our defaults are, which we will have all bought into without realising. And letting God's word speak into that, in a sense, in quite familiar ways. I just mentioned creation, sin and salvation. These are very familiar, big block topics. But what I found as I've taught on this is I teach on those areas, but teach with regard to identity and show how it's different to how we'd build identity in the world. And people are like, well, this I've never heard this before. And it's like, well, no, what I've done is told you God made you, you've sinned against him and he saves you in Christ. And they kind of go, yeah, I know, but I didn't quite get it. So it's applying those truths. I mean, God set the agenda in those truths to speak to who I am, looking in the mirror of his word. Thanks, Graham. Karen, it feels a bit like this has a health warning. Yeah. 
in that, that there'd be some of our friends who, if they heard us listening on this topic, you know, we could be saying, tell your children they are sinners. It's part of their identity. Could you just help us, Karen, with what's, what's the value of talking about this, this topic in particular? How does it help us as parents? Why do we need to do it? Yes, I think what Graham has said about identity I have found incredibly helpful because all children have desires and longings, hopes and fears. Uh, They will make sense out of the world according to what they believe about God, themselves, other people. And often this is all this making sense of the world is hidden. We don't see it. We see it in their behaviour, perhaps. That's where we're getting their clues. But in very young children, it's very hard to know what sense are they making of themselves, of God. But families are a place where I think it's incredibly unique that actually our children's hearts, our hearts are being revealed in situation after situation daily. You know, the fight over the last suite, the argument over who gets to sit in the front seat of the car, perhaps the push because of an insult that has been spoken, maybe a joke that is demeaning. Maybe the words that say, I hate you, or the slamming of the door because you've had to stop something that you really long for. Our children are looking for things that will satisfy them and can find that in places other than the Lord Jesus. And none of those, I guess some of those things aren't necessarily bad things they're looking for, but without Christ, they're not going to be things that really ultimately enable them to grow in that Christ-likeness. But I think the way we do this is really important. There's one thing to have knowledge about our identity. There's another thing in how then do we speak into a child's heart. And and we know this to be the case, but it's so difficult to do. And I think as parents, we're often at risk of pitting grace against sin, that somehow showing grace means that we ignore sin. But actually, grace is the way that deals with sin it's the very purpose of which sin is able to be exposed and forgiven so children need to know ultimately that they are forgiven and held in Christ and actually that is the means by which we are able to help a child see their fears and their longings and their desires that are apart from Christ and we do that when you know in the context of them being completely wrapped in the robes of the Lord's righteousness, assured of his grace and his forgiveness, because that is the point that enables them to have the hope to live differently and also to absolve the guilt that is then laid at the cross of the Lord Jesus. Otherwise, we just address the behaviour. And I think maybe when we talk a little bit further on as to how that can be damaging to just look at the behaviour and miss what's going on underneath. It can seem to the world damaging to say you're a sinner, um, it seems to me both that many, many kids will know they are mm. and actually giving them permission to say, yeah, that is who I am, is huge. It's always most freeing. And to help them see God knows who you are. <laughs> he made you the way you are. He knows what you've done. He knows who I am and what I'm like and what I've done. Mm. And he encourages us to come clean. Mm. And he encourages us to come clean, not to rub our face in anything, but to come clean so it can be dealt with. Mm. So it's a kind of, it's the most loving reality call. And the world saying we must never tell our children they do anything wrong or we we water it down into kind of, you know, poor choices or whatever language we use to try Mm. and make it a lesser thing. Mm. Ultimately, as Karen was saying, will lessen grace. But it actually turns God into a kind of a there-there sort of God rather than a, hey, I can be, you can be real with him. He knows what you like and he's calling you to come clean. Mm-hmm. I, I think, Karen, about that list you just gave us of mm. the everyday things in our homes. And, and I think the one thing I'm struck by is as a parent, we could predict which of our children would it be that pushes the other in the back. Which of the children would it be that makes the snide remark? Mm. Which of the children would it be who takes the thing they've been specifically told not to, which is the children who claims they've never done that. Yeah. So, as you say, the unique aspect of family mm. is not just that things go wrong, but you can almost predict the things that go wrong, as you can predict yeah. your own heart. Yeah. So, because we're the expert on each of our children, we get to know, where do we lovingly point out, do you see this problem yeah. that you have? Yeah. That is because... You are a sinner. Mm. 
meaning you are broken. Mm. Now, I am broken. And as your dad, you can absolutely predict how I am broken. Mm. Mm. And if you want, we can make the list now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but I think that is key that actually a part of parenting is modelling something of that. And the reality that actually all of us will continue to sin until the day we die. But we do that in the context of knowing we are fully forgiven, not as an excuse that we then continue, mm. but as an opportunity to grow and to be transformed into a greater likeness in Christ. And and that is a genuine and real hope for all of us, um, even for you, Ed. The, the miraculous <laughs> is at work in my life. Yes, but I think that is a key thing because actually, as a parent, addressing sin can be done in a way that is so humiliating and shaming to a child that it ends up being counterproductive and unhelpful to that child. So a part of having the humility ourselves as parents to know that we too are sinful and we are grappling with these same issues does help us to come alongside our children a little bit and to help them recognise that this is a lived experience of being in the world that we are in that is fallen and broken and that there are things within us that are fallen and broken too. There are other ways I think it's important for us to be able to help a child see their sin that isn't destructive to them. So Graham was helping us to see that there's an interplay between the things we do wrong, that our children do wrong, Mm -hmm. And this conversation about identity that's probably rarer. So a suggestion might be, Karen, that when we see something going wrong in the family, in the kitchen, it's in front of everyone. As a parent, you probably say, stop. Let's not do that anymore. Or, well done. I've seen you do the right thing. The conversation that is about identity, do you see this struggle, brokenness that you have that keeps Mm -hmm. on happening? That's best done in private, isn't it? Rather than in front of the family. You know, let, let's all name the problem with each child. Is is that the beginning of, of how we avoid that humiliation? Yeah, absolutely. And I think quietly and confidentially is the place to do that. But I think also we have to understand what's going on in the life of that child and why is it that they're actually behaving that way, which comes back to their identity. Mm. What what are the why? The why, absolutely, but the child will not know the why, especially if they're very young. Mm. Do you know? Well, I don't know. I, this was a horrible feeling I felt, and mm. this is how I responded in it. So a part of our role, I think, as parents is to help our children make sense of what happened. And I think we do need to initially do that in a very non-judgmental way, actually, that what we've seen is behaviour that feels really awful and actually might have been sinful but we don't know the motivation of that child's heart and what happened and it may be that they need to understand a little bit more of themselves and who God is before we can even discern whether that was sinful or suffering does that make sense or is that quite do you think you're you're able to give us an example of something that we as parents want to sort of put an end to but in the child's mind might not feel feel wrong or even be wrong Yes, I mean, I think the most obvious one is anger can be something that is expressed in a way that is hurtful to themselves and others. Now, it could be that that child is expressing that anger because they don't know how to handle it or hold it. And actually, the issue there is to be able to meet that child and help them understand how to manage something that feels like a really horrible, awful emotion in ways that don't hurt other people. So I think that the issue really is to address the anger. What is it that they felt that they wanted that they didn't get? And that might be the sin, actually. Or what is it that they didn't get that they would have liked? And to help them reshape their desires according to God's desires for them. You know, Are they longing after things that will not ultimately satisfy them? And they're getting angry because they're not getting those things that aren't satisfying them. So the behaviour, I guess, is the way in, but we're trying to understand really what is going on in their heart. Now, the anger could be actually a very just and right anger and a real sense of understanding that that child needs to be understood that, yes, this would be something that would provoke anger. You have been hurt and somebody has sinned against you. And that is a place where actually you need to be able to help them understand that, but to respond in ways that don't hurt others or themselves even can we just try to sketch out something of what we're talking about for different age groups because i think often as i talk to people about this 
I often find that sort of parents of three-year-olds are looking increasingly worried that, that these conversations aren't happening in their home. Yeah. So it's, it's just helpful to, to try to give people... Now, every child is different, and there are mm. reasons why they, you can't just sketch out an easy mm. map. Mm. But let, let's just try and do a, a quick team effort on this. Yeah. So, for instance, under threes, under twos, my experience is that they're, they're the only ones in their world. They're often just responding to a desire. They grab, they shout, they scream. Yeah they don't have much understanding of the reasons or the why, and so those sorts of conversations don't feature. Yeah. Karen, with the under threes, what, what are we trying to do there? I mean, the conversations aren't going to happen because they're, they're just too little to understand. But I think the most important thing and what they will understand is relationship and the relationship that you have with them. And, and in those points, you are building a strong, trusting relationship with your child. And so moving towards your child and hugging them and, you know, I guess if they are moving towards an electrical plug, okay, they're 10 months and, and you've said no, okay, and they understand no, but they look at you and they keep running towards the plug and they're going to put their hand in the plug and and you can continue to say no. At that point, I think they're not going to say, you know, they're not going to understand what they're doing as disobedient, they're moving away, they're putting themselves in danger, but moving towards them, putting your arms around them and saying, you know, that will hurt. And hugging them. Okay. And in our in our manner, in our words, we are helping them to understand, even in tone of voice. Mm. They understand tone of voice. They understand urgency, emergency. Yeah. We're just communicating right from wrong, mm. urgency from calm. Yeah, a lot of it early on is, is actually just about safety, to be honest. Great. Great. So if we take the next chunk, maybe three to seven, three to seven-year-olds have little abstract understanding. So words like sin, mm. brokenness, you know, brokenness is a broken mug. Mm. They don't understand they are broken. That, mm. that sort of self-awareness isn't there. So for three to sevens, they, they're in the conversation. They're talking about it. You're talking to them. But generally, it's the immediate issue. So the conversation probably happens within, you know, an hour of the issue rather than mm. reflecting back a week later. Yeah. yeah. And... We are mainly just trying to show them that same thing you're describing, which is what is right from wrong. Mm -hmm. They're learning to say sorry. They've understood when they've made it, got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And they're usually able to understand they're responsible or they're not responsible. Mm -hmm. It's also worth adding, I think, some issues of things like identity, like acceptance from others is coming in at that stage. I mean, what you know, as they start school, they'll, they'll have the concept of like who's popular. Um, I want friends. Mm. I want to be thought of a certain way, mm. and so on. Now, that, those aren't that, that, that. That's not sin, godliness. Mm. But that is crucial in starting to f work out how I do think about who I am mm. and where I'm looking for my identity. Mm. So, don't know how that plays out, but that that's starting to come onto the, onto the table, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And a place of belonging. So they will definitely be looking for places of belonging. And, yeah, I think the identity starts to explode at that point in terms of understanding a little bit more of who they connect with. And they begin to see, especially at the upper end of that age group, that they are different to another person and that they might have different thoughts to another person. So there starts to be a little bit of a separation where perhaps the world doesn't all think the same way that they do. And also Graham's point is, they may come home from school feeling rejected and may confuse that category of sinner. You know, yeah. I, if people aren't talking to me, what have yeah. I done wrong? Yeah. Rather than yeah. I'm different. I've not done anything wrong. Yeah. I'm not in the wrong. Yeah. Or, or, or equivalently, they could come home from school feeling great because they looked really great in class. Yeah. Mm. And there's something, you know, hey, there's something good about having done whatever they did well mm. that we want to be, celebrate with them. But we don't want to encourage a kind of I'm great because, you know, I think of the, you know, the kid, uh, probably maybe moving up the age slightly, the, 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 the football mad boy who longs to be in the football team or picked first or whatever it is, who isn't, feels bad about themselves, who is, who feels good about themselves, and helping them see that the way God thinks of us and encourages us to think of ourselves is different to that. You know, that God wants us on his team, whatever. It doesn't matter how good you are at it. 
And actually, it's from the security of that that we can then live life rather than this constant attempting to be accepted by my performance. Thank you. So we're looking probably to the eight and up where there is now much more of a self-awareness of I've had good days and I've had bad days. And certainly over eight, there's now an awareness of popularity and how many friends I've got and the things that make me different in this conversation, often over eights will realise they're the only Christian in their class or the only mm. Christian in their football club. So trying to help them to understand those good days and bad days, the way they're judging themselves based on behaviour, performance, mm. the goal they've scored, the test they've got back, the friend who's affirmed them, that is changeable. That is not reliable. Yeah. Mm. The forgiveness God offers mm. That is on which to build our lives. And yeah. over eight, we can start to help because they're starting to be abstract mm, thinkers. Yeah. They can start to understand what we mean by God's love is the same today as it was yesterday, is the same tomorrow. And we mm. can compare that to how they're feeling on any given day. I mean, I think I still, and you know, when you do have a child that age coming home feeling like they have been rejected, and perhaps they've come home, they've stomped upstairs, they've slammed the door, and actually, we go in and address those behaviours. And I think at that age, a child, rather than saying what's wrong with you, because even at that point, we don't quite even know what the context or motivations is, just saying what happened will help them make sense of actually what happened. And they have the capacity, but they need us as parents to be able to help make sense of what happened uh, and to perhaps widen the perspective a little bit because because they are growing, but they are still quite self-referential do you know, and, uh, meaning the sorry, world they revolves around, around them. them. Thank you. <laughs> they, when does that stop, Karen? <laughs> never. <laughs> but actually, they—it's—it's it's the flip side and the darker side of that that they will come home and believe they are responsible for things that they are not responsible for. A child who is eight or eleven in a high conflictual home where there's lots of arguments will believe that they are responsible for their parents' arguments and and perhaps even a separation or divorce. So, so those conversations really do need to happen um, because they have the capacity to understand and make better sense of it than feeling that they are responsible for everything that is happening around them. Graham, I've been asked a question before, and I think it's a great question. Simply, what does it look like to have a home with grace in it? Meaning, do we just let everything slide? Is that grace? Or or do we change our mind? Is that grace? C- could you just help us understand something of what a home looks like that's trying to relate this? We understand we're sinners. We understand we can be forgiven. And, mm. and we understand the freedom of grace that exactly as Karen said, it comes because we believe these things. Yeah, yeah it's a... I think it's going to be a hard one to get right. We can have this kind of, I have standards and then it feels harsh. (laughs) Or we have grace and I have no standards. But biblically, that's clearly wrong. Titus 2, it's the grace of God that teaches me to say no to ungodliness and to live a self-controlled life. And, you know, Romans 5, we stand in grace. It's like, well, it's our position. We don't move from that. And yet it's from that position we go on in Romans to live a godly life in all sorts of ways. So we've got to get, we've, I mean, where, where we might feel conflicted, we have to convince ourselves, first of all, that there isn't a problem between these two. And I think It's the air we breathe in our homes mm, rather yeah. than today is a day of grace. Exactly. Mm, exactly. You know, t- today I'm going to decide to, go t- t- to show you some grace. But, but in, in contrast to yesterday when I decided I'd sort of like draw some lines. If we feel a conflict between those two, we need to get that somewhat sorted in our own heads as much as we can, or at least at least believe the two aren't in tension. And, and I just want to interrupt to get yeah, it really on. clear. That picture in the Bible of God is our Father just helps us get that. Yeah. In that every day we are experiencing his grace and his love. There's not 10% more tomorrow and there's 10% less yesterday. Yeah. So that helps us to be reassured as parents we are doing this with our own children. Yeah. Yeah. If we loved them yesterday and we're resolving to love them tomorrow, yeah. there's grace in our homes. Absolutely, absolutely. But just like that good father who is utterly accepting and whose love is constant, that doesn't mean he doesn't have standards for his children. And in fact, the grace will be shown in, if precisely when those, things, when, when those standards aren't met. 
I think what it will look like in practice is it doesn't grace doesn't mean you don't tell your kids off or tell them what they've done wrong, point it out, wisdom calls as to when and on what issues, etc. But it's not that you don't do it. It's that when you do it and when there are sorries, there's no, you now need to prove yourself back to me. You now need, I, you don't enter a kind of, kind of no man's land of under judgment or under grace until I've decided I'm really going to let you off the hook now. If we believe God is the one who runs and welcomes the son and flings his arms around him, as he says, I'm, I'm sorry, Dad, we do the same. Yeah, and I would even argue that that's the context in which sin can be revealed, because yeah. without grace, it's very hard to expose yes. sin. Yeah. That actually it's, it's, it's not that... The sun comes and then grace is shown. Grace is shown that enables you to be able to confess and say, assured of your forgiveness yeah. and wrapped in those robes of righteousness and yeah. continued love. Yeah. So in, in a culture of forgiveness and where sin is forgotten, it is easier to be brave and say, here is my sin. This is how they reacted last time and the time before and the time before rather than feeling like I'm increasingly walking on thinner eggshells. Mm. It's almost like I want to ramp up their confidence in how I'm going to respond mm. because that will actually help them confess and come clean. The observation from older, wiser Christians than me that if parents are willing to apologise yeah. and for it not to be a once-every-decade event... yeah, yeah. That also, because by a parent saying sorry to the children, there is an assumption there, I will still, you will be willing to listen to me tomorrow. Yeah. I will still be your dad tomorrow. You won't hold this against me for the rest of the year. Yeah. Is that just the act of a parent saying sorry just really helps us get, I'm, I'm really expecting that you're going to forgive me. Yeah that you know I'm going to try not to do it again and this this will be forgotten yeah. and I'll be able to move on as you will too. Yeah, yeah. And something even more in that, that that I think is really precious to hold on to is that a child learns that a break in a relationship can be reconciled and restored. And to you as a parent, as you move towards your child and demonstrate that in love, helps them see that, that even the hardest, most difficult fraction of a relationship can be restored and reconciled. And quite often I think... But particularly as kids get older, in a lot of our interactions where they end up acting badly, we've done something wrong as well. You know, I'm sorry I didn't listen to you tell me about your day over the dinner table. I was distracted by that, but that's not an excuse. I'm sorry, I apologise. You then got overly angry <laughs> and mm. threw the food, whatever you did. But in a lot of interactions... There's stuff for us to apologise for. And being very alert to that and very quick to own it, mm. I think, is really key. And that's the context of grace in which a child is much more likely to be able to take responsibility for their part too, because you've taken responsibility for yours. Yeah. There are a few positions in our culture that work against what we're discussing at the moment. Mm. And I just wanted to run through a few of them and just ask where there's truth in that and where there isn't. The first one is... Every sin, every failing can be attached to our environment, our upbringing. It's never the fault of the individual, or it rarely is. The individual is a victim. I think this is particularly pressing with children and young people because that they lack that ability to step away from their upbringing and say, I'm going to be different today. Mm. Is, there, is there truth in that? Is there a position of that, Graham? Do you want to start? Well, I think I'd begin with this fundamentally an untruth. There's a lie there because of, say, uh, Mark 7, Jesus saying, in discussing uncleanness, where does uncleanness, evil, that's, that stains us, where does it come from? It comes from our hearts. And that's a fascinating passage. It's dealing with lots of like ritual cleansing stuff, but fundamentally it's what causes us to do things wrong. Where does anger and selfishness and everything come from? And Jesus says it's our hearts. Don't look for external factors. So there's a big no to that. Having said that, I think there are two caveats. One is, is that external factors are often what bring things out of us. 
So they provoked me, they did this, I'm tired, etc. Et there are lots of contextual things that bring it out in the moment. Is it, is it that they caused it? No, it came from my heart, I caused it. Is it, what, is it are they what brought it out of me in that moment? Yes, of course they did. And had those things not happened, I wouldn't have got angry. So at a, at a sort of almost like a superficial level, yes, of course they caused it. But then it's not an ultimate cause. It's more like they revealed it. But the other caveat is some things get much more mixed because I am sinned against in some way. Someone is, is damaging to me. And I will respond, I expect, with a mixture of appropriateness and inappropriateness. Say I get angry. Well, some of that anger will be appropriate. Anger isn't wrong, isn't a wrong emotion in and of itself. Will I get more angry than I should? Will I express that anger badly, etc.? So now I need to differentiate because some of it was caused by them and my response was appropriate, not sinful. Others of it was caused by them and I did sin. And I need to try and separate that out. And that can be very hard, I think, particularly for, for, for children to, to, to sort of recognise. And we need to gently lead them through that. Karen, is, is there a particular angle for children, young people in particular? I mean, I, I agree with what Graham has said. And I, I think because in the mental health field, we're often dealing with children who are actually suffering quite a lot. And the circumstances around them where they are helpless to change, they have no choice, no power, no agency, is actually quite um, deeply hurtful to them. So I get where they're coming from. And in fact, even in the field, challenging behaviour is now behaviour that challenges in the point that the focus is taken off the child and it's the other people who are being challenged by the behaviour that's the problem. And I think you're right, Graeme, that actually when, when you are hurting quite deeply and there is suffering and something is coming at you, we can choose to respond to that in godly or ungodly ways. And and when we choose to respond in ungodly ways because the pain hurts so much, we confound the suffering. And, and there does need to be a sense of trying to separate those things out. But even in the mental health fields, I would argue, I mean, there is a sense of every child needs to grow at some point to take responsibility for their own behaviour. That would be a part of growing up. And I, I don't think that they would necessarily dismiss that. But it is owning their behaviour and the impact that they might have on another person and their role in a breakdown of the relationship that actually um, drives them away from the Lord Jesus and, and causes them to look for things that are outside of his desires for them. I don't know if it's helpful, but one, one sort of thing I use in talking to people, I'm not thinking about kids here necessarily, but I think it applies, is that where someone's sinned against, where they're a, they are a victim, What's God's response? God comforts them. Where people sin, where they are the, the one doing the wrong, what does God do? God calls us, calls us to repentance, calls us to discipleship. Mm. So in any one instance, we have God's comfort and or God's call. And I think in a lot of instances, it's a bit of both. Mm. And I, because God would comfort you over how your classmates treated you today. But he'd call you to not lash out. Mm. And may, it may well be that parents need to decide what, what, where at least I want to put the emphasis. Where, where's the emphasis? Is it, is it primarily comfort on this one? Because I hear, I say what happened. I mm. ask how you're feeling. And I say, you know what? I think God would just want to say this to you and comfort you in that. But there will also need to be God will call you to say sorry, to, 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 to change your behaviour. So just having those two categories in our heads and thinking, is it, is it 50-50, is it 90-10, you know, whatever it is. And, and as a parent, perhaps only one gets talked about in a exactly. conversation. Exactly, because I think, I think, you know what, I think it's mainly comfort on this one because they're mm. just bruised from their day. Mm. I'm not going to call them to anything now. I'm just going to comfort them. And, and, and knowing ourselves as parents... Some of us will instinctively always go to the giving the comfort. Some of us will always instinctively go in to give the call. So whichever one you know you tend to yourself, try and counteract that on, on occasions. I would argue too, it's not, it's not helpful to do those two things together at the same time. Sure. That you know, there is a space for comfort and the call comes later when the comfort feels like it's been received well. Yeah. Yeah. 
I find it helpful that in the parable of the lost son, there are, there are two sons, yeah. the younger and the older. Mm-hmm. And I would observe, I think, that children often are more like one than the other. Yeah. So the first one is the son who runs away. There are some children who, who seem to more often do the wrong thing, mm-hmm. who, who more often are needing to apologise. And they are aware of it. They feel it. Or maybe they're not. Mm-hmm. Karen, can you just help us? If, if we find ourselves parenting one of those children and the teacher is coming to talk to us about their behaviour a lot, yeah. how, how does having a Christian perspective on this help us? Well, I think like the the younger son that's really helpful in that story is that actually the child often knows their need for their saviour. You know, there's a point in which their lives have kind of, I guess, ricocheted after one mistake after another that can generate its own sense of failures, that they know their need for the Lord Jesus. And so in many ways they can be the easier child to reach the heart because they are crying out for a sense of forgiveness and understanding. What I would like to do, and it probably moves away from this two binary category, is that there are some children who will feel guilty and ashamed and have not done anything wrong, but they have had things done to them. And I think it would be helpful to at some point just have a little conversation about how we meet that particular child's needs and point them to the Lord Jesus. But in this one, I think actually, going back to all that we have said, that actually this this child already knows that they need their saviour. They're running towards you. All we need to do is run towards them and point them to the Lord Jesus. But also going back to that we do that, knowing that they are assured of our forgiveness and wrapped in the rose of righteousness, that we are delighting in them, we are welcoming them, we are grateful that they are coming and receiving their Heavenly Father, if you like. And then Graham is another category. And perhaps... In, you know, nice Christian families, we can raise children who really get the rules, who really get what godliness looks like, who know the right answers and the language. That that older son in the parable of the lost son, feeling always self-righteous, feeling always like it's the other child who's done it wrong and they haven't, and an unwillingness to say sorry because they struggle to see they need to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, as as Karen said... Uh, rightly, I think that the child who's so aware of what they do wrong in some ways can be the easier, although it feels more challenging because the behaviour feels challenging. The one you're describing, it feels okay because the behaviour by, by and large feels okay, but it's actually more challenging because they are self-righteous, as you just said. They are more likely to fall into the you know the, you know, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They're more likely to say, say basically, thank you, God, I'm so good, rather than sorry, God, I'm so bad. And it, it is, I think, a real challenge to get kids to realise this because it's not that we want to, to nitpick on behaviour and go, oh, yeah, but you did do that. <laughs> and nor do we want to um, not be glad for good behaviour. But what we want to do is to get to heart attitude. I guess ultimately we'd like them to see the, the wrongness and the ugliness of self-righteousness and the appropriateness of humility. It means we're going to talk about how all of our hearts have turned against God, how what we do wrong is not just what we do, but why we do it. When I do stuff to be seen and be thought of well and so on, I'm doing something wrong. So it's more subtle, Mm. and I think there are real dangers and issues there, but we must be alert to it or we will inadvertently and unwittingly breed kind of pleasant but really quite self-righteous children. And actually they are often the children who are lovely and compliant and the ones that you kind of promote outside because they will behave in the way that does actually make us all feel quite good about ourselves too. But I wonder in both of these situations, and we have already mentioned this as well, us as parents being able to admit our own sinfulness and mistakes yeah. as a way forward to model to them that none of us is actually right all the time and that even mum and dad get things wrong. And actually to do that in a way that we are so glad that we're able to see where we've gone wrong because to continue without seeing that would be much more damaging to me as a parent and hurtful to you as a child if I didn't see it. 
at least yeah. opens up their eyes to see a lived example of what this looks like yeah. in the home. And use, you know, use the Bible here. I mean, the parable of the Pharisee tax collector speaks straight into this. Some of the prayers in the Psalms, you know, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden sins. And a parent praying saying, I don't know, I can't even imagine the way I've sinned today. Please forgive me. That, that I think must end up speaking volumes to a, yeah. to a child. And if we can jump back to that first child again, because I just had another thought on that, that yes, they might be the easier because they know their need. But one thing that they might be tempted and struggle to do is that they would hold on to their guilt. And they really need to be assured that actually once forgiveness is granted, their guilt is laid at the foot of the cross. And they, they uh, you know, to be encouraged to live as if they are no longer guilty for their mistakes, for their sin, yeah. and what they had done. Hi, it's Amy from Faith in Kids here. Whilst we're thinking about this topic of parenting the heart, whether we've got a child who's an older brother or a younger brother, we're going to hear a short clip from an interview with Ed Shaw, a self-confessed older brother. Let's go. So I'm, I'm the oldest child and you know, in the birth order in my family, if there was a castle to inherit, I'd be the one that would get it, um, but there isn't. I also fit the attributes of the older child in the parable of the prodigal son in the sense that I'm obedient, I've done the right things, I haven't rebelled in any significant way, and I'm in massive danger of being a self-righteous Pharisee most of my life, looking down on my younger siblings, particularly my younger sister, who probably would be more like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. So I'm actually grateful for, I mean, this is where I'm grateful for my sexuality and my struggles with my sexuality because it's the thing that God's most used to trip me up and to stop me from becoming a self-righteous Pharisee totally. Still a self-righteous Pharisee to quite a large extent, but the thing that most undermines that are the struggles I've had around my sexuality and sexual identity. And I think you know, if you have got a child who you recognise is becoming a bit of a self-righteous Pharisee, actually one of the best things you can pray is that God would give them a pattern of sin and struggle that undermines that and that pushes them towards the gospel of grace and helps them to recognise that we're all in need of forgiveness from a father who runs to meet us. And that's not just a need of younger brothers who've who've run away from home. It's also a need of those who stayed at home, but internally have spent a lot of time dreaming of what it would be to run away from home. Wow. Thanks, Ed, for your honesty. Could we be brave enough to pray for an ongoing struggle that made us need the Lord more for ourselves, for our kids? Let's head back to the conversation with Ed, Karen and Graham. And this this conversation reveals something of, of the joy of being a Christian parent mm. is, is you don't need a sort of totally new parenting manual for every child in that what's common with every child, irrespective of their brilliant, poor behaviour, hard heart, soft heart is you are a sinner. Mm. I know I know you're getting things wrong, even if you refuse to admit it. Jesus Christ is offers you love. Mm. He offers you belonging. He offers you safety as he offers it to me. Mm. And a slow, calm conversation in language they can understand, whether it's a a one-minute hug Mm. with a three-year-old or a painfully long conversation over weeks with a teenager, we're trying to do the same thing. Offer gospel truth in a context of love and patience. Yes, and I think that's where it comes about those strong, trusting relationships you have with your children from baby to adulthood, which is the context of safety for that child to be able to come to you with all the ugliness and the good and the bad because you are a safe person and you are one who will love them and forgive them. And it comes back to where we started in terms of where people will get their identity from. In all of that, what you're doing is is saying, look in the mirror of God's word, see what he says about you, who you are, uh, uh, what you're like, what he offers you in Christ. And as you were just saying, Karen, there is there is within all of that, both for us and for our children, the challenge of, will I actually believe and bow before what God says about me and accept it? Or... Do actually, in a sense, the 
the very root of pride, the very root of sin, and that pride of, no, I want to stand on my own two feet. Mm. And, and whether it's a self-righteous child or a sinful child holding mm. on to their guilt, actually, mm. I'm not willing to accept what God says. There is a, mm. there's, there, there is some of the, like, the really underground battle in parenting and where we should be praying, I think, is that my child would have the humility to hear what God says mm. and to accept it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, both of you. Graham, would you pray that now? That mm. seems like the perfect place to finish. Father, we thank you uh, for your grace to us in Christ, that despite your uh, loving creation of us and our sinful rebellion, that you come to us in grace in Christ, that we can be accepted uh, despite being uh, unacceptable, that we are loved despite our sin, forgiven despite our guilt. And we pray, Father God, we would uh, be parents who rejoice in those truths for ourselves and live them out. Uh, We would be those who can pass them on to our children and in your kindness and by the work of your spirit, uh, you would open our children's eyes to accept these things for themselves. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening. What a thought-provoking episode. All the resources we're producing in our Who Am I series aim to equip families and churches to start the conversation and confidently offer the secure identity God gives us as his loved children. So why not download our free seven-week teaching resource, which is available now on our website. Subscribe to this podcast for great episodes on this topic. And check out our family podcast for kids that models talking about identity with little ones. And if you're enjoying what we do, please donate and support our ministry. See you next time.